This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello, and welcome to my Monday night show. I am Hannah Wilson, and tonight we're going to be talking about teacher training. Are we preparing trainees well enough, and are we really showing them the reality of teaching and making sure they're prepared and can stay in teaching? Feel free to call in or write in your thoughts or messages or questions. This is Teachers Talk Radio and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello and welcome uh, to this Monday night in the holidays Um, and thank you for joining me. We're going to be chatting about teacher training and kind of uh, things that you wish you knew before you started and what kind of things will help you stay in teaching and how can we get people to stay in teaching. I'm just going to go through some facts that I've read. There was um, an actual census on a number of trainee teachers uh, by the FE News, so um, from Education News, and it was quite interesting to see kind of the numbers. So uh, total new entrants were down 20%, so down to 28,991, as opposed to in 21-22, it was 36,000. Postgraduate entrants uh, were down from uh, 23%, so 23,224, down from 30,000. Uh, undergraduate entrance was uh, 5,767, so down from 5%. So it's real interesting to see how far they're falling down, but obviously there's a lot more people leaving as well. So there's a real gap in terms of recruitment. Uh, Their recruitment targets were really not reached. So primary subjects, their targets were missed by 131%, and secondary subjects were down from 79% to 59%. So um, primary was down from 131 to 93%. it's quite interesting to see the amount um, that aren't coming into education and staying in education. And I think that kind of um, is quite interesting at looking how it is. And of course, it's the school holidays, so I've just been joining my son. Um, just watch telly. You're allowed telly for this hour. Do you want to say hello to everybody? Yeah. What do you say? <laughs> one future teacher there um hello Lydia you've come on uh, and called in now you're um we work together so we've been chatting about this haven't we about kind of teacher training and how we get to it and and there's loads of different routes so should we start by chatting about kind of how did you get into teaching uh, and then we'll go into mine because I've got a bit of a different route and I think yours is slightly different as well yeah mine's can you hear me all right? Yes, I can. So mine's a bit of a an interesting one because it, it's it's quite step by step in that I never thought I was going to be a teacher. Um, and I, I sort of, but from the age of 16, I worked a lot with um, people with special educational needs. And I did a lot of outreach with my sick form and I used to um, run a performing arts program with a, a local special needs school. Um and then I went to university and did the whole student ambassador thing where I, I spent a lot of time going into different schools and um, and doing all those things. And 
I think through that in my final year of uni, I decided I wanted to become a teacher, but I really wanted to make sure it was the right route um, because there is this, there is a lot of chat that I'm sure we'll talk about later about what schools are actually like when you get into them. So having had some experiences in a lot of different types of schools, I, I decided to stick with somewhat what I knew and um, and did a year as a TA in a, in a special needs school, a school specialism for autism. And and spent a year doing that before I then went and did a year of um, teacher training through a university. So I did that that sort of uh, the PGCE route. Um, but then that got hit by COVID. So I actually only did, I think, two or three weeks of my placement too before we were sort of sent off. So I was one of the year that, that went from having taught maximum of, of sort of 12 hours in a week to a full timetable in the following September. And then having to deal with the subsequent um, lockdowns post that and teaching online for which we had absolutely no training. And that's the thing, I do think teaching has changed so much since COVID. Um, and I'll actually go through some facts that I found out about on that. So Ed Week, they um, surveyed um, 700 teachers and 300 school leaders in March 2001. So obviously this was after the pandemic. Um, and pre-COVID, it asked like, how likely were you to leave the teaching profession and um, the answers were very likely, somewhat likely, somewhat unlikely or very unlikely. So somewhat likely and very unlikely were um, pre-COVID was 34%, whereas after COVID, when they asked what is the likelihood that you'll leave in the teaching in the next two years, it rose to 54%. So that's quite a big jump. And I think that just shows kind of how hard teaching's become lately yeah I think there's been a real shift I think part of it comes from a lot of students and parents actually almost now see schools as more of an optional thing because during Covid there was a lot of schools doing a lot of different things I think everybody was doing their best but I think a lot of students were left to their own devices to get on with things and they kind of saw school as something that oh well that they couldn't really do it wasn't really working for a lot of people they didn't have the necessary access and I think that's sort of it's a big landmark of a of a change that we've experienced that's been a sort of it's been a slow change in the last 10 years with education. But I think it's been a more significant change since COVID towards the perspective of teachers and education and, and schools. And I think we're now seeing a lot more of the TikTok trends making a joke of teachers in the classroom and and members of teaching staff that potentially isn't done for other careers. Um, and I think like that they're calling it a recruitment and retention crisis. And I think a lot of it has to do with the, the view of the profession as a whole. And I think the, the previous benefits that were perceived to be with being a teacher maybe aren't there anymore. And I think people don't want, aren't wanting to go into it because they're, they're seeing it being mocked in the media, they're seeing it being mocked on TikTok, but then they're also seeing it not being really regarded as a profession from our own government. And and I think that then affects the people want to go into it. I, I, I think whereas my generation, generations above me, might have been in school looking up to their teachers and a lot of all of that their teachers do, and therefore thinking that maybe they might want to become one, I think there's less of that now because the the behaviour has has worsened within schools. There's a, a a few national statistics on that, but um, 
Uh, I think all of that has led to people not actually seeing it as a as a profession that they aspire to. I think it's more uh, become a profession yeah. that's that's perceived as like, oh, if you're doing a certain subject and you can't think of what to do, be a teacher for a bit and then do something. Yeah, the, the, the emphasis has changed, hasn't it? Like you used to go into teaching because that was like your career, that was your passion and, and it was quite well advocated, like it's quite well paid, long holidays, very rewarding. And I think that's judgment's changed, that very much that phrase of those that can't teach and that it's like this negative thing and that you, you, you can't be successful in other jobs so therefore you must, that's the only reason you can teach. And, and this whole like public perception of teachers is that like everything is like oh well you get so much holiday and uh, you barely work you only work till three o'clock the, the, the narrative of what a teacher is isn't a positive one and I do think they've, they've got those tv adverts where they're trying to encourage people into teaching but they don't they're not really kind of battling really that kind of I think they persona. actually do more damage than good because they're almost because they're presenting such a polar opposite of what everybody already thinks of teaching, it almost is seen as a joke. Because like the advert themselves is like, oh, every lesson changes a life, and um, I can't remember what some of the other slogans are, but they're all very, oh, it's amazing. There's like, and I guess it would be when you're trying to advertise for people to do something, but there needs to be a certain level of how realistic is that, and and people are aware that that's. I mean, everyone's been through education themselves. They know that that every lesson of their own life did not shape their life. Some of them did, but actually, you know, every single lesson, potentially not. I just think that the way that they're attempting to tackle it doesn't really work. And at the moment, I think both sides of the government's perception actually is to just throw money at the problem. Um, but actually, that doesn't fix it because we, we can see that when people are getting increased bonuses and or the increased um, money going into uh, the first few years of being like an M1 or M2, actually, people are still dropping out in droves. So the, the way isn't even to con people into the profession and then hope they stay, but actually they're not even staying that long. I think that the, the cohort that I, uh, I did my PGC with, many of them now aren't teachers. Many of them have, have gone on to do other things because they're, the demands on their time and the demands on 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 the stress level they have to encounter each day are so much lower and they see it as a lot more sustainable long term and they can see where they're going and i think i think that's a real big problem i i completely agree i think um we were discussing it on the weekly show a couple of weeks ago um about the idea that the government were going to do like a bonus if you like stayed for two years or or what have you and it's like i don't know whether that's going to uh, get people to stay in the profession I think getting people to stay in the profession is about actually making them have things that they want to achieve. I think there's a, a slight issue in a lot of schools now where if, if, you're, if you stay being quote-unquote only a teacher, then you're not seen as progressing enough. But then the, the salary ranges and things don't really benefit you if you don't then move up into either the leadership scale or through the TLRs. And so... What happens is people are looking to uh, having to progress when they potentially actually just want to be a class teacher. And and furthermore to that, I think the other issue that I'm, I'm certainly in the category of I, I don't want to be a head teacher or a vice principal or even realistically, I don't know if I'd ever want to even be an assistant principal because 
I look at what those people in the different schools that I've worked at have to do and the time that they don't have with their families and the pressure that's put on them and it's it's not always that healthy and they might love their job but then they're what are they giving it up to get there and I think there's very few professions where where your your main pathway is that it is it's that whole thing isn't it and as well as if if teachers are good they there's that kind of quite quick to give them extra responsibilities I know that in in a previous school that I worked at a lot of NQTs were giving given head of department roles or or head of um, year roles and, and I just felt like they weren't ready for it um and actually it would provided like burnout too quickly that they kind of jumped up this ladder before actually kind of honing their skills and i think yeah, it's it's, it's, it's okay to be in that place isn't it it's okay to just sit there and be a, a classroom teacher and actually understand it and become good at it yeah but i also think that people need to recognize it's a different skill set somebody can be an amazing teacher but uh, absolutely pants head of year or they can be a really phenomenal teacher but not so good as a head of a department because they're a different skill set being a head of department requires a lot more like overall organization but it also requires you to be able to manage people and have diplomatic conversations and do all of these things so asking somebody in their first year of training to master two separate skill sets at the same time is unrealistic but it's also unrealistic to say that people ever want to be in that position not everybody wants to be a manager not everybody wants to have or, 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 for example, be in the pastoral position where they're having to deal with really serious events as a head of year. And it, it's an interesting problem that we have in schools where I actually think we've not got enough diversity of roles in there, but we also don't have enough other professions in there. I mean, we all know that, that the social work support, the police support, all of the, the even uh, mental health support, a lot of bit of it has been withdrawn or reduced from schools. And it's almost like teachers are left on their own to, to plug in the gaps. But we're not trained. Like we're, we're dealing with an unprecedented amount of mental health in schools. And there's all the data to back that up and the effect of COVID has. But we don't have the training on it. Like these NQTs, or, or, or they're called now ECTs, so they, they do their one-year training when they've been in two placements. And they've maybe done 45 days at best of education with a provider alongside that and then we're expecting them to go into schools be able to adequately deliver all the material but alongside that have the knowledge of how to support students in their mental health and how to uh, navigate all these various different things and I think that's where a lot of this initial dropout comes from because people can't do it it's not it's not realistic and it, it never has been and that's why the the retention isn't just at the early career point that's an issue. There, we've also got a problem with um, people keeping people sort of towards nearing retirement, where potentially before they might have stayed a few more years, they're leaving a few years early because they feel like it's worsening in that situation. So yeah, I agree. Leave. I was looking at the retirement figures as well, just as a contrast, and and they last year was the first year they didn't kind of drop and I think that's perhaps those teachers going I'll just give it one more year because I 
because they, if, you, if you stayed in teaching till you're retiring, you really, really love teaching and you don't want to see a school struggle. And, and with the majority of these like kind of gaps in education being filled by cover teachers or teachers that that isn't their subject, like you would feel like kind of a duty to almost stay if you could. Uh, but I do think over the next couple of years, we're, we're going to see that really drop off where people have stayed longer than they should have. And now we're going to suddenly get a drop and, and we're not getting them in from the other end and they're not staying. I think it's, it's having a third of teachers um, leaving the profession with in the next five years, according to Tess. And that was two years ago. So uh, <laughs> we are right on time for there to be a, like a mass exit. And I think also with kind of the strikes and everything and, and that that not helping the public perception of teachers, it's not, why would somebody, why would somebody want to get into teaching now with how teaching has been shown in the media and I think it is the thing every time there is something it's like oh we'll go and clap for the nurses we'll we'll praise the doctors and the ambulance workers and rightly so but it's like oh well the teachers want another day off do they and it's like you do know we lose pay like I spoke to my friend I'm not in a striking union but I spoke to a friend who was and she lost something like £1,500 doing the strikes and with the increased pay it, it, it barely balances out because she loses her child benefit and it's just like it was like but we're doing it because we want it to come out of the the government's budget as opposed to the school budgets because we didn't want the children to lose out but that wasn't really reported in the media we've been backed in a corner with that anyway because the 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 most of the unions now saying well we're, we're backed into a corner of accepting um even though half of it is unfunded and schools can't afford that no but nobody's addressing the fact that um the funding for schools is is not anywhere near it should be where it should be full stop, but especially considering the fact that we've got increased mental health difficulties within schools. Yeah. We've got an increased number of diagnosed um, kids wait on, with waiting for EHCPs, but also where we're trying to put provision in when, well, we don't have anything for it. And I, I think that's why another reason why, why we've got a retention crisis is because teachers are looking at their class. They might have a class of 30 in front of them, with five kids in there with quite significant mental health issues, another five kids in there who have um, a special educational needs, and then maybe another five who are EAL. And actually trying to manage that and plan for that and produce the resources yeah. and support all those students, it's, it's not realistic because if the student's having a mental health crisis, a lot of the time, well, they're waiting two or three or four years before they can can be be seen or spoken to by a, a professional and if and in the meantime schools are paying for counsellors to come in off their own back to try and support them but then schools can't afford that and they can only give it to a couple of students and I think it's that as well as, as a new teacher you don't expect that that isn't something that you're expecting to happen you expect to go in to teach in front of a class and that be it you don't expect the kind of role that you have in terms of having to support students and their mental health and their and their learning needs, like how much that is. And I think as you go through the teaching career and you and you've been there, done that, it is easier to manage. But I think that's something that we don't prepare uh, trainee teachers for enough. The reality of how many different needs there would be within one class, especially if you're teaching a mixability set, like that each class is going to have a completely different makeup, and it's just. 
that's quite hard to get your head around at the start. And if you don't kind of, if you don't master that, I think that makes teaching really difficult as well. Yeah, and I've also heard amongst sort of colleagues as, as well in different schools that there is almost this rhetoric that the people who have it hardest in a school, and I actually agree, the people who are working the hardest in school are often the teachers who are only the teachers and who don't have additional responsibilities because often what happens is with additional responsibilities comes increased planning time for those responsibilities and so people have more time they're they're less contact they have more time to to actually navigate this and it's the the people who are just the teachers and don't have any additional responsibilities who are firefighting and i think frankly surviving i think if you when we speak to a lot of ects and in those first times, a lot of the time people do seem to feel like they're just surviving the, the week by week and, and getting to the, the half terms and spending a good chunk of that half term doing work anyway. It's just more relaxed work. It, it's, it's that for me, I feel like I cope quite well because I'm, I'm, I'm in it well over a decade. I know what I'm doing. But I also feel like if I had more time, I could make better resources, I could plan better, I could mark better, I could teach better. I feel like everything is at a rush. Like I'm 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 getting everything done that I want to get done, but I'm doing it to the kind of the lowest standard because I if I didn't, if I did it to a high standard, gosh, I could spend twice as long on it and I would never have a life. And it's it's that balance. Like I would mu- I would love to have an extra kind of, even if it was one day every half a term where I could really plan and get to grips and implement stuff, the effect and the positive effect it could have on my teaching. And I don't think that kind of the government understand that. Like we're all professionals. We all love what we do. We're all very good at what we do, but we do not have the time to do it to our best of our abilities. And that's the issue. I think interestingly to add on to that, the I think that there's a, that's a huge problem with the retention crisis because I mean I, I just started doing my analysis of my my master's research project on um, staff teaching students with EAL. And one of the things that comes up continually in all of the different research is time, in that teachers don't have enough time to adequately prepare for having EAL students in their class, and what happens is that. That students themselves don't get the support and therefore make the progress as expected but alongside that actually the the feelings amongst staff is that they're letting students down that they're failing these students and no adult goes into teaching to fail students we all go into it as as a career that we want to teach and we want to see students succeeding and help them achieve the best that they can and actually feeling like we're failing students just I mean is appalling there's there's so much data specifically for EAL students but also for different groups of students that we're not in this country adequately supporting them they're not making the expected progress the only group that are making their expected progress is the students with EAL who are already fluent in English and if they're not considered fluent in English or at any level below they fall below their expected progress and no, we shouldn't be in that position, but staff also shouldn't be in a position where they feel like they're failing students. Um, it's not it's not making anybody feel good about their job if they feel like they're scraping through their teaching. And I think that's the thing with teacher training is that they need to give like the 
the trainee the same group and not like jump around they need to have time to get to know those kids and really have somebody sit down with them and really analyze the class so they know exactly what's to come so they're more prepared for it I remember the best training I did actually was when I first started at school and um one of the inset they only did it as a one-off but I feel like actually that would have been really good if it was an every year thing and we all had our classes printed out and uh, we just did it for key stage four but we all had our classes printed out on little sheets um with their names and, and their their needs and and kind of their prior attaining and what their targets are and things like that and it was really nice because I hadn't been there, there very long and I was like I can't work out this kid and then I'd go and speak to somebody on a different table and they'd be like oh yeah no sit her with this person and they'll work well together and it was having that whole collaborative process I was like I, was like, I can't I can't quite work out this kid because I think it was like after half a term in or a term in and like I'd go and chat to the the SEN table they were like oh you need to do this this and this and it's like it was this great kind of collaborative process where you could almost wander around the room see what students other people had and their combinations and I think seeing how other teachers who have done it for a while or know those students how they put them together and how they manage those classes is 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 lost a little bit in in teacher training that kind of real organic collaborative we'll help you because we're going to have the time we're going to sit and do that now whereas it is it seems to be the rush kind of just read their passport um kind of thing because people just don't have the time to sit and do it properly I think that's what it comes down to though isn't it it's time like teacher training itself is a short period of time the time like generally mentors aren't given extra time to be a mentor no and if they are it's maybe an hour a fortnight or an hour a week which really isn't adequate and I mean I think that's where it comes down to is we, we can't expect people to go from not ever really teaching before just handling a full timetable just achieving that within a year is is a feat in itself but then actually expecting them to be competent in all these other things that, that at the moment and especially since Covid have risen up as an issue that as a time demand I think everybody is so much more pushed within school for time because so much more is expected of every member of the staff. I think teachers are doing more than they've ever done. Head teachers are doing more than they've ever done. I think I saw Gillian Keegan the other day suggesting that head teachers should go and pick up students from their houses who aren't who are who aren't coming into school. I mean, where does that stop? <laughs> I mean, that that isn't the the role of the schools. Like we're 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 not babysitters we're, we're here to teach and support these students and, and their progress both their personal development as well as their academic development but I mean we're 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 adding more and more year on year into what schools are expected to do we've we've added in the dental things because the dental levels of our country dropped so we now do more education on how to brush your teeth and all those various different things primary schools are seeing more kids showing up not uh, still in nappies and not toilet trained so then they're they're getting on to doing that, and but there's not time. We don't have time to do all of those things and and run all these various different things because other resources are being cut. I think that is it's that, isn't it? We need to do a better job. But one of the things that they have done. So obviously you uh, did a slightly more typical route in, but had COVID get in the way. I went straight in as an instructor covering um maternity leave i had a master's degree but i hadn't taught before 
other than my interview lesson and I managed to get the job um, over qualified teachers. So uh, it must have been the blood. If you haven't listened to that one where I got it from, have a go back through my podcast and listen to my one with my sister. Um, but um, oh, but then I did that for a couple of years and then I did um, basically a salary directed route. So I was teaching a 0.8 timetable. So I taught full for four days a week. And then on a Friday, I went and did my teacher training and then I did kind of 14 Fridays in another school uh, for my second placement. And then uh, I think there was a week where I went and did an SEN school and a primary school and stuff at the start. So um, mine was kind of a slightly different, but obviously they've kind of opened it up now. So um, you can have a degree and you've worked in schools and you want to get a qualification, you can either do the postgraduate apprenticeship or the assessment only route. So obviously, if you've worked in schools for a while, I was kind of borderline for that. I could have created a portfolio and submit that. But I actually wanted to do the course and actually learn from it. Um, you have a degree. Um, again, you can do the postgraduate teacher training. Um, so there's PD dips, there's a um, skit and things like that as well. Um, or initial teacher training um, but you don't have a degree so you can do the undergraduate degree and then do the teacher training but they're, they're doing the um, new apprenticeships where you don't have to have a degree but you can go in that route as well to try and kind of recruit people and I think that's kind of quite a nice one because it should get more I think it's quite good for, for people that um, are like LSAs and things that want to get into teaching and can transfer over because I um I listened to one of Tom's uh Twitter shows and on that they had um the actual lady who was the mentor and the trainee teacher and she had been an LSA but didn't have a degree uh six years I think it was doing an open university degree before being able to get onto her course but if they had the apprenticeship she'd have been able to get straight in whereas I went straight in and did it as a as a, a trained uh, instructor having not got a qualification and they got the qualification later but she in theory would have had way more experience in the classroom than I did teaching it so it's it's but I think, I think there's an interesting debate there because actually they're doing a similar thing with um medicine so you can now become a doctor without doing a degree um yeah and and I think there's there's some obvious problems with that but I think with teaching I think I support different routes into teaching. I think that we've got a really good range, but I do wonder how much uh, subject specialism we're going to start losing with teachers who haven't necessarily done a degree in the topic, because being able to successfully teach some of these subjects, and I'm not saying all subjects, I think that is actually in fact quite subject dependent, um, but I think it could become a very fine line. Uh, for example, so I'm science-based, um, just doing your A-levels in the subject uh, is not necessarily going to give you the depth of knowledge within a lot of these uh, courses to then be able to teach it at GCSE and A-level successfully, purely because in the last however many years they've brought down a lot of the content into A-levels and GCSEs that was pre previously at university level. And I, I sort of wonder um, how easy it is to go the other way because we're expecting graduates knowing the content to learn the teaching skill and sort of giving alternate introducing this next route kind of adds the opposite so we've got people who will have the teaching skill but not not necessarily the content 
And I think it's the same as um, I had somebody the other day chatting on one of the shows and they were saying that they were a science teacher, but they uh, their expertise was one of the other subjects and they had a real gap. of They didn't have anybody to fill A-level physics and they wanted to do it, but they could not find a course anywhere that would upskill them in it. So I think that there's a loophole there. I like in terms of the doctor thing it's quite interesting because my sister is a nurse and she did a medical degree became a nurse and she's done the qualification so basically she's the equivalent of a doctor and can prescribe but she's not an actual doctor um so in in that respect she's the loophole in terms of she's been a nurse for kind of 20 years and done a and e done gp everything but she's the equivalent of like she's got kind of high level qualifications in in various different medical procedures but she's now a consultant ah, but nurse, so but she's not a doctor, so she can't earn as much as a doctor, and she can't have a doctor name, but she can do everything that the doctor in the GP surgery does. So it's, it's kind of an because there's that they've introduced like this year that I understand that because that makes a lot of sense. But they've introduced people being going from A levels with no previous medical experience to go into becoming a doctor and train on the job in a hospital. And I think that's the thing with the apprenticeships for teaching. I think they're good, but I think there should be a loophole that they've got to have done LSA work or been in a school environment for a certain amount of time prior to doing it. And I think I think actually that if we if we kind of almost made it a two year course with the apprenticeship, if you really want to go into it without having to go and do three year degree go do a year as an LSA where you literally absorb everything you possibly can and really see and make sure it's for you and then go in and have a year where you actually full-on teach and do all the theory and stuff as well and like the first year as an LSA you would kind of gain all the information about kind of SEN kids and and behavior and things like that and you'd hone those crafts and then the second one would be all about like planning the lessons and pacing and timing and actually rather than because I, I just feel like one year for teacher training isn't quite enough time to get everything done to make somebody fully prepared to go into it but also if you're not a key subject and you're trying to do that f- like without a funding you can't physically work and do your teacher training. There just aren't, isn't enough hours. So how are we expecting people to survive? Because they would have finished uni. So these are like people in their 20s. They probably don't want to live at home. They're not going to have the money to be able to work to pet, to work for free for, for a year to do their teacher training. It's, like, it's, it's a really tough situation. I agree. But then arguably, you could say with the, the salaries of LSAs and t- TAs where they are at the moment, that it's not it's arguably not actually even affordable for a lot of people to work as a LSA or TA for a year. Because what you're suggesting is effectively what I did put myself through. I put myself through yeah. being a TA and then did the teacher training, um, which I think is, is was hugely valuable. Um, and I still draw on experiences that I've had from them. And I often find that I've had a lot more experience than sometimes more experienced teachers in with certain uh, uh, students and certain uh, disabilities or, or diagnoses because I have had a more breadth of experience in that rather than training and staying at one school, for example. But yeah, I think I think they need to think about it more than just about getting people into teaching because even if we get all the people we can into teaching, it's it's not worth anything unless we can get them to stay. Yeah. And how do we how do we better prepare them? Because I feel like that would prepare them more if they had a two year thing, one thing focusing on kind of behaviour and SEN and and EAL and things like that. And then a year kind of 
on your teaching craft. But other than that, other than other than me getting voted to be education secretary and taking the world over, what could we do? You go, girl. Now. <laughs> um, I think we need to have a better system of what actually happens once staff get into school. I think for a profession where we're in front of students most of our time, we've weirdly got not a lot of time with colleagues. Yeah. Um, like in your average day, the only time that you get with colleagues is potentially at a lunchtime. The rest of the time you're you're in front of students. And I think a lot of it for newly qualified teachers is faking it till they're making it and putting a face on and, yeah. and hoping and, and gritting and getting on with it. I mean, it's but we, we don't have that unless you've got a really, really strong department, which I mean, the data showing is happening less and less. Um that, that it gets harder I mean like we've got maths te- we've got so few maths teachers now and physics teachers but we've got so few maths teachers that we've got people who have no qualifications in it trying to teach it um, and they don't know what they're doing because ma- maths isn't something that that is is necessarily like another subject it has its own set of skills and techniques to teach with and I think we can prepare people all we want before we go into something, but they need the coaching and the support when once they're in it. And I think whatever people want to call it, whether it's mentoring or instructional coaching or whatever name or, or new theory that people want to use, I think actually what people need when they first become a teacher is another member of staff who's more experienced being brutally honest with them and actually offering them some support. I think actually it can feel quite confrontational to have a member of staff with you who is trying to give you advice on on what to do with things but you feel like you're being judged by them and i know since changing the ect framework that isn't it trying to take away that kind of being like observed like i feel like that's seen as such a negative thing and i i feel like that should be turned into more of a positive thing with teacher training and continued throughout like i'm very much a little bit crazy that when officer turn up I emailed going if you don't give them to me I will be annoyed um like I want them in my classroom like I want them my team are great like um like hands up it should be me but I feel like that's how every kind of department should feel but instead of I'm just very very used to it the school I was at prior to us it is it had very much an open door policy like I had the classroom next to their deputy head. He would wander in on a daily basis and wander out. And at the start, I was like, oh, oh, what what, what did you think? Like, I haven't had any feedback. And he's like, oh, I just wander in and out. I just wander around and look at everybody's lessons. If I'm if I'm worried, then I'll come talk to you. But I won't come talk to you if, if it was fine. If, like, I might comment about it in, like, briefing if I saw something that I enjoyed. But generally, I'm just wandering around. And I, I feel like that's kind of disappeared a little bit in terms of granted because slt are exceptionally busy and probably don't have as much time now to wander around and pop into people's lessons but it should be this kind of this organic thing that comes from kind of teach training that you should welcome people into your lesson you should welcome feedback like that's how you grow we're, we're we are the advocators of trying to get students to learn and we should lead by example by saying that we, we're never done learning we always need to keep learning and keep growing and that we need to bring people into our classrooms and have other people's perspectives and that that's a good thing not a negative thing i think it's, it's not even about how we frame it anymore i think it's just about giving the time to do it like we don't have the time in my opinion in, in, in an average timetable where you get the the sort of average allotted time off uh, or pta time i think 
you don't have the time to to spend going and having looking at other classes or 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 people coming to look in in your class and then give, having time to give you feedback or but because no matter how good a school is at promoting ongoing staff learning and, and even sort of providing books and providing resources and providing access to National College or, or whatever it may be, the reality is, is if you don't give staff time to access it and time to use it, then you're expecting staff to yeah. do all of this in their own time. And, and that isn't realistic comparable to, to most other careers. Most other careers, if you're expected to go on these courses, it's during your it's it's during your work time and you're paid for it if you're expected to read something or, or do an online course it's in your paid time it's not in in time that you're making up on your own i think th that sort of access is the problem here is because like our, our school has access to online resources it has uh, we have access to books and things but actually the time needed to use it and to access it if you're if you're running yourself thin during each day using your a lot of time it becomes hard i mean i know i've tried to to look at my time slots to try and go and look at other lessons but when it comes down to it actually you've got a whole long list of things to do and lessons to prepare for it needs to be that has to take priority and i think more recently that's what's happened is is teachers are doing it off their own back and and as lovely as that is and i'm i'm part of that crew like uh, it's, it's a problem in terms of what we're expecting of, of adults yeah because that's my thing is that i i always tell my trainees like don't don't stop doing cpd don't stop learning don't think that those after school sessions that you have as an ect are really dull and boring and not interesting and a waste of your evening they're they're your they're your bread and butter that's where you learn and that's where you develop yes there'll be bad ones but there'll be ones that will stick with you forever and it and it is that kind of minefield and i was actually on um my uh, master's course the other day and uh one of the ladies was saying that we should like it sh shouldn't be kind of inset is a horrible word it should be kind of continued development very much a culture that will chuck people on the free ones because that's that's like we don't have a budget just go on a free one and we're, we're chucking people on things that are free because they're free because that's the schools don't have budgets and they're not necessarily going on quality cpd we're not making the time for them to have kind of quality cpd and keep that learning and i know i know ects get like an extra hour but like i've honed my skills over kind of 12 years of teaching and that i can mark a set of books in 20 minutes but in my early days that like a set of books is telling me taking me a good hour and like they don't have that time to develop themselves and work out kind of where they want to learn and what they need to learn about and, and where to find those resources as well. Um, it's quite an interesting one that you kind of are kind of just left into the teaching profession that I feel like it should be this kind of narrative that schools are like, we, we need to keep learning. This is what we want to learn about. These are the, these are all the things we've found that are available this term if people want to go on them or somebody can go on one and, and feed back and, and tell everybody about it. Like it needs to be more of a kind of a culture as teachers that we kind of continuously learn and develop. Otherwise you sit there and you're not up to date with the research. You don't know what how students are changing, technology's changing, the way students learn is changing. If you don't keep up, you're gonna struggle to teach your class and get the results that you need because, because then everyone else will be developing.
Yeah, I think also, I mean, aside from that there's not money to go on the course, even if sometimes it is a free course, the problem comes is, oh, you need cover for your class and that costs money. So then there's another way that things can't get paid for. But I think it's, it's an ongoing problem, isn't it? Because we we can always want to try and upskill and try and improve ourselves. But if it if it doesn't feel like it's it's being able to be successful, we've we've got problems. I mean, I think it was Adam Boxer that talked about there's an issue with one person doing training and then feeding back to everybody because it ends up being a, a kind of like Chinese whispers in that one yeah. person learns something. It might have been Tom Sherrington. And when when one person learns something and then tries to feed it back to others, they don't themselves fully understand it until they've put it into practice and done it really in quite a lot of depth. And so. I think because I think a lot of schools have tried to do that. They send one person on the course, and then that person comes and does a twilight or a, an evening session, and and then everybody's upskilled in that one thing. And the reality is, is that not. But equally, I think there's there's not enough of a conversation about how we can lighten teachers' workload. I think with the introduction of AI and how that could be helpful and the sharing of resources, there is a possibility here to reduce the the workload and what's what we can achieve in each amount of time i mean realistically for most subjects now we don't need the level of marking that, that used to exist in schools no because I, I, in my previous school before i moved to r1 we were doing an insane amount of marking and i, I was that person that was sort of staying until six o'clock because our books were expected to be marked sort of um, once per uh, four weeks and then each class was expected to have a test done every half term so then you're looking at a whole second lot of marking and then you've got your big assessments that need to be marked and then the exam questions were expected to be marked and the reality is is that wasn't that successful for, for the students and there is that evidence for that but actually with our with the increase of ai and all these various different things there's a lot we can do to help develop our students not only in using the tech for the future but also in their skills for learning because we're also not for a lot of our students teaching our students about a joy of learning for themselves and finding out things i'm going to put a, a throw a curveball in are we generally seeing kind of teaching training organizations run by people that are kind of been in the classroom a while and then kind of move into teacher training before they retire as opposed to kind of really good classroom teachers that have been successful and, and maybe in, been not been in it as long going and inspiring and teaching kind of the, the teacher trainers i i i don't know the different organizations that we have that have we got enough younger people younger teachers inspiring and going and being able to help them and support them and, and show them to be more tech savvy yeah i agree i think there's a, a fine line between both i mean i've also had the, the flipped experience where you get taught in teach training um, admittedly not for a long time because my teacher training was, was quite quite comprehensive actually but I've, I've seen it where you have people training others to teach and they themselves uh, in their own words, only coped a couple of years in the classroom, and uh, okay. that's yeah. not setting you up for success. But all the teacher providers I've had have been have been people that are just just putting off retirement a little bit longer, so they're just going to do a bit of teacher training. But um, but obviously, I'm going back from like kind of my years and the, and the, the the ones that my other friends were on at the time. Like we all quite had an older generation of instructors, so I get it yeah, is that fine line, isn't it? I think there's also the, the huge thing of um, 
that actually the teaching landscape has changed uh, hugely since COVID. It's not a small shift that some people try and portray it as. It's a massive shift. It's a behavioural shift, it's a mental health shift, it's, a, it's an attitudinal shift from both parents and students. And it's also a, a public perception shift in how they, they perceive schools and what we actually do in schools. And um, I don't think you can have, I don't think it's that helpful anymore to have teachers who, are, who have been out of the classroom for 10 plus years giving advice to the new teachers. I actually think it does more harm than good because it's not giving them any information. It might be, you know, there might be some nuggets of uh, useful in there, but they're taking it from one scenario and trying to place it into a completely different scenario. A, a comprehensive school 10, 15, 20 years ago had way more support staff. They had, they had loads more TAs supporting them. And the reality of, of it now is you may get a couple of lessons in your week with the TA in if you're lucky. Otherwise, you won't. It's on your own. It's you. And so having a, a whole session on, on that and not how to manage your classroom as an individual, uh, as an example, is, is where we start having sort of conflations. I think you need, you need people going in to do teacher training with these people who are still teaching. They're still on the grindstone. They're still doing it. They still know themselves that they are in trying to improve themselves, but actually they can give a, a reliable perspective that isn't warped by the pre-COVID era because it is hugely different. And I don't think people want to accept that it's as different as it is. I, I, I think it is. I think, I think the behaviour is different. I think the way children learn is different. I think the way that children engage with education is different. I think the way the parents view education is different. And I think that's um, the key. Right, I'm just going to play our news uh, for today's show and then we will be chatting more about kind of teacher training. What What is things that you wish you knew and how can we improve it? It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. It's the summer holidays for almost everyone, but apologies for those not quite finished yet. And the topic of money is not far from the thoughts of many. But Schools Week looks back at the year and reports that nearly two thirds of schools increased the cost of pupil meals this year and the large majority of schools have had to make cuts in other areas. The findings are taken from regular government surveys of school leaders and teachers, and results show that over one quarter of schools say support with energy bills made no real difference to financial positions. The pressure of the cost of living crisis affected schools in several key ways. These included a rise in the cost of pupil lunches, which had to be passed on to many parents. Some schools also reported a decline in meal quality as providers attempted to reduce costs. Cuts to support staff and, in some cases, teaching staff. 
and schools struggled to comply with new statutory guidance on uniform, with many schools opting to introduce a second-hand uniform scheme to support parents. Recruitment pressures led to schools appointing non-specialist teachers for subjects such as history and technology, saying this increased workload and stress. Send pressures also increased, with 87% of those surveyed citing lack of funds and access to specialist services as the key issue. The same publication also featured a story on exam fees, as AQA, England's largest exam board, announced increases for some of its most popular GCSE and A-level subjects by as much as 16.5%. The changes will affect the 2024 series. The article features details of increases made by Edexcel and OCR too. Jeff Barton, General Secretary of the ASCO Union, responded by saying that this latest price hike will only serve to stretch budgets even further. Exam boards are obliged to notify Ofqual of any proposed fee increases. Ofqual monitors pricing for qualifications from the not-for-profit exam boards. The Guardian covered the nomination of Sir Martin Oliver as Ofsted's next Chief Inspector by Education Secretary Gillian Keegan. A pre-appointment hearing will take place in the autumn, but Ms Keegan said Sir Martin had demonstrated exemplary leadership and praised his work in areas of disadvantage as the Chief Executive of Outwood Grange Academies Trust. Sir Martin said he was hugely privileged to be nominated and that he would work closely with the whole sector to create the best systems in all areas. His proportion comes in spite of criticism, including from Ofsted inspectors, of his trust's record on pupil suspensions and exclusions. The article goes on to highlight the issues Sir Martin may find lurking in his intray if he is confirmed for a January 2024 start. These include the outcome of the inquest into the death of Ruth Perry and the calls for a full-scale review of the inspectorate, including the scrapping of single-word judgments. The inspection of children's services at a time when there is a high turnover of social workers and an over-reliance on agency workers who are having to deal with heavy caseloads. He will also have to deal with media and political pressures in a role which could see him regularly in the spotlight. Finally, the BBC reports that the government will break its own deadline to provide schools in England with guidance on policies for transgender pupils. The guidance has been promised before the summer break, but is delayed because the Attorney-General for England and Wales has advised parts of the guidance may be unlawful. The guidance was expected to address what schools should do if a child wanted to change their name or use different pronouns, and whether to involve parents. Ministers were considering advising against allowing social transitioning in schools after a 2020 report found that it was not a neutral act, and more information was needed about its outcomes. The Attorney-General, however, has said that an outright ban would be unlawful. Ministers now have to decide what to do next compile lawful guidance or contemplate changing the law altogether. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week we're going to talk about a couple of shortcuts and hacks that can make life a little easier. This may not be as innovative as some of my past life hacks for teachers, like drinking noodles, but here are a couple of things that may make a difference to your use of media in the classroom. First up, if you aren't already riding it, get on the Wakelet Wave. Wakelet is a free way to save, organise and share content. 
create collections of web pages, videos, and basically anything with a web address under one topic. Once done, you have a shareable link to your collection. Use it to organize your lesson, flip a lesson, or create revision collections, just to throw a few ideas out there. This next hack is one of my favorites. I love using YouTube to support learning. Not only can it help keep pace in a lesson, but also it's a great reference afterwards for pupils to refer to. My biggest gripe with it though, is that pesky advert you can't skip that always decides to play when you're in full flow. Here's a secret that works nearly all of the time. When preparing your lesson, you will have watched the clip anyway to ensure it's appropriate. So just before you copy the link into your presentation or wakelet, type this on the end and T equals one. That's the ampersand or the wiggly and lowercase t equals and the number one. Now copy the URL with and t equals one on the end and your clip will start one second in. Not missing any content but skipping the adverts at the start. No need to thank me, show your gratitude with a follow and tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. And that's what our trainees should be listening to, shouldn't they? Finding out all those little tips. I did not know that. That's kind of, I'm like, oh, will I remember that in September? Maybe not, but I will try to. If you um, embed a video as well in a PowerPoint, it tends to skip the adverts. Um, but yeah, it's, mine are, were embedded, but then we moved from Google to Teams and now they're not. So I've got to go around again. But that's another Sometimes. thing. That's an, um, So we're talking about the fact that kind of how we can best support teacher training and make sure they kind of uh, stay in teacher training. So SEDEC, um, the voice for secondary education, they were saying that in uh, this was in 2022, uh, June, so the end of last year, 77% uh, of uh, early careers teachers were still in teaching after three years and only 68% uh, after five years. So is, is my math correct? So that's one in four that leave the profession within the first three years. Um, so it's thinking about how we prepare them. Um, Paul's given us a couple. So we've got um, the best CPD is from schools sharing ideas between each other, which I completely agree with. And I, as that's my other tip is I would say to every trainee, find your staff room and eat in there or rotate around the different staff rooms. If you've got multiple staff rooms, don't hide in your room and eat, eat your food there because actually you get to know different people. So for me, A block staff room, that was where I get to know all the, the cover supervisors and all the LSAs. And if I'm having trouble with students, they will give me tips. Whereas uh, down the other one, if I went down E block staff room, I would kind of get more pedagogical kind of chat about educational research because it's different people. So it's, it's kind of, a school dynamic don't don't pinpoint yourself and just put yourself in one staff room and stick with that or hide in your room and don't eat with everyone go and get involved and, and I love having I, I will make sure that I always go and uh, sit and chat and have lunch with a trainee because I think it's it's nice to kind of find out how how they're getting on and, and what they're thinking and I think that's kind of our role as teachers as well that we check in on them even if they're nothing to do with our department it's still kind of nice to include them and speak to them and and kind of find out how they're getting on and and know that it is a group effort in a school you have to have a team otherwise it doesn't work yeah definitely um so uh paul says in his school is part of the behavior hub a scheme where schools in the region get together once every three months to discuss behavior issues is a way to solve this it's been so good oh that sounds really good because it's, it's it's i think sometimes you can feel really alone as teachers and it is reaching out and doing and talking to others so i'm a national subject lead for our trust for art and design so i kind of 
do the same for for art we kind of have online cpd every half a term and then we have one kind of regional one in the summer term one in the south and one in the north because we've got 46 schools uh where if the schools are allowed out due to cover etc uh then it's a great opportunity to kind of chat and also do you just feel like oh gosh are you guys struggling with year nine this year yeah i'm really struggling or how was your retention did you did you get a good uptake because for us it was quite interesting after the pandemic because we went full on as soon as we could teach in our classrooms we went full on practical because we hadn't been doing it um previously and actually that meant that we had a really big uptake where other schools because they stuck in their classrooms longer than we did and then perhaps so I think having those other people and seeing what other schools are doing is really important as well, especially in your early years. Like, because if you feel like you don't, you can't talk to your department for whatever reason, it's really important to kind of reach out. Same as I don't know whether it's the same with other subjects. We have a um, network of East Anglian art teachers, and I know there's there's a South one and a, a Northern one as well. Um, because we were kind of inspired and made our own down here. And and again, we meet up every now and then and, and run workshops where we train each other. But basically, it's just, just time to go and have a bit of a chat and and bond with other art teachers across the region. But I don't know whether it's... Do you, are there things like that for, for science? Not, not as far as I'm aware of. I mean, I think there's an interesting point you've made there where it's actually really school and department specific in that who's leading you. In, because in different schools I've worked at, I mean... I've had schools that would just reject any support offered by like by a trust because they think they were doing it better, and so as a as a trainee in, in that school, you get very limited outside influence other than your department, um, especially if the department lead is sort of resistant to outside support. Um, but then, yeah, I think it's I think it's just hugely dependent because I mean some schools are really. Uh, only seem to want trust stuff so we'll do this because it's it, our trust offers it and it's all within trust and it's all it's all to do with the trust mm. or the academy chain um and then others seem to be a bit more open to to outside influences i also th- think it depends on what's available i mean um some lead practitioners can be really on it with certain things and not others and i think that there's all different things going on i mean um our trust at the moment is is getting uh programs of study and, and curriculums done uh, for and moving across the board so in both science and PSHE we're we're rolling those out but I think yeah it, it depends on where you can get support because it is very useful and having done more of it in the last sort of year or two I can really see the benefit but as a, I remember being trained and being in my, my NQT year and there was literally no outside influence and I think I think that's the thing isn't it with it was Sorry, sorry, you, you finish. <laughs> well, the only outside influence was stuff that I went and sought out in my own time. There was nothing within school that was was done. Even the ECT program at the time, because it was all online, it was all very single dimensional, one person talking, very little interaction, and mm. it was almost put that on whilst you mark. Yeah, and I think that's the thing with a trust. It's a fine line, isn't it? You can, if you've got these centralized curriculums or what have you that schools can roll out, then you don't want to reinvent the wheel. If if there's something that somebody's already doing that you can borrow and take, like I don't think there's there's a bit of a thing, isn't there, where it's like, oh, but that's my resources. I spent time. I made that. But like, actually, we need to collaborate more as a whole in terms of as as teachers. Like, we need to support each other. I don't. 
I've already seen online somebody going, oh, I'm spending my summer rewriting the photography curriculum. Has anybody got anything? I've, I've, not, I've been asked to rewrite this. Does anybody have anything for 3D? Because we're now trying to include that in art. And I'm like, these poor people that are going to be spending their summers kind of creating curriculums. I'm like, no, here, here's mine, already done, have it. Um, and I quite like that. And sometimes I know, Paul, your primary, like we have eight primary schools within our trust and and quite often the, the primary art leads are also the art lead, uh, the leads for music and, and DT and other areas. So they're not necessarily art teachers. Um, so it's quite nice working with them and I can be like, here you go, here, here, are, here are these. Or I've worked with different companies that actually create... Um, there's a website called Teach Your Class to Draw where they have um, a, a video that you play your students and they have a video that you watch as, as a teacher before the lesson. So it upskills you, you then play the lesson and then you get your kids to follow along. And there's a whole entire series so they can follow along and, and kind of do that, uh, their drawing. So it's it's knowing where to look for the resources, but not feeling as, as a trainee. I think there's so much effort, emphasis, isn't there? You need to write your lesson plan. You need to plan this. You need to plan that. And actually we need to be, kind of twisting it and be like you need to go find this and then adapt it for your students and I think that narrative could change in terms of teacher training that it's perfectly acceptable to share resources it's perfectly acceptable if you want to pay a quid on tests and make your life easier go for it because like actually those people have put a lot of time into those resources hopefully and they're they're pretty decent so if you want to pay a couple of quid for their time but gain multiple hours of your own time then I, th I think kind of that kind of scenario is perfectly acceptable and actually we need to kind of have more encouragement as kind of the collaborative process rather than it's seen as like oh I'm just going to download a freebie for cover like uh, and I think like the Oaks started doing it, I suppose, with COVID. But I know certainly like from the art perspectives, all of those are kind of gone and obsolete. And you certainly wouldn't have been able to teach them for like keep providing it as cover because the kids would have already done that. And there wasn't a huge amount kind of offered. But I think having those places where you can go and see what a quality resource is, so you know how and then take that and adapt it should be seen as perfectly acceptable. Yeah, definitely. I mean, actually, interestingly, my my teacher trainer uh, through the university that I was at had a saying that was like magpie it. If if there's something you like, magpie it, and, yeah. and keep passing it on and keep sharing. And um, she, like she she the first thing she said, and I remember the first week was right. Everybody get a a USB or a or a um a hard drive. And every time you go somewhere, download the stuff. <laughs> download yeah. the things that you need. And then just keep adding to it because if all else fails and you can't find a resource, you can do a whole device search and find it. And um, and I, and I still have that same thing. I I continue to do that, and it's a lifesaver. But I think you're definitely right. Sharing resources is is so valuable, and actually, but also being able to tell what makes a good resource and a bad resource. And yeah. Like and but also for example, covers an interesting one because we're all told to set cover. But very rarely does anybody actually give you any feedback on your cover. No, we're not. Um, we're never taught how to set cover properly. No. How to like that would that should be in your teacher training. That should be in everybody's inset for like even if it's fifteen minutes at the start of every year. How to set good cover. What expectations are for cover, and feedback from from the teachers. Because I know our um, cover supervisors will say like like yours and English are the best cover 
resources because they're so easy to follow like but that's just because I'm I had so many people off sick at the start of my teaching career at this school I wrote every lesson with videos where I I basically recorded how to do it and I suppose that also came about with Loom as well like I loved in I kept that on from um Covid so in Covid I recorded the videos and spoke along my powerpoints and sent them home but like when I have cover now, I'll do a quick Loom video where I talk through the PowerPoint and then I, that way the, the LS, there's no confusion. As long as the LS, uh, the cover teacher plays it, then there's no uh, kind of miscommunication of what I was expecting to happen, if that makes sense as well. So, and, and then those lessons aren't wasted. Yeah, I think it's, it's hard because also there needs to be a fine line here between what's what staff are expected to set for cover because already yeah. i mean unless it's a planned cover teachers don't as far as i'm aware officially have to set cover no but really the reality is, is we all do because it, it otherwise it makes our lives a nightmare um but we all set cover and we all, all do all these things, but it can be from all over the place. I mean, I've set cover from my phone in a car before, um, <laughs> steaming yeah. whilst my partner's driven me down the motorway somewhere. Um, or, you know, in a, in a hospital waiting room, you're just texting your, yeah. your colleague where, where each class is and what, what they, what something they could do for them to write it for you. And, you know, I mean, yeah, I, 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 I did, I have written work. cover from a hospital bed a lot this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. I think there's a lot of very innovative things being done with cover. I know there was a, a post in Tez uh, a couple of months ago, might have been longer actually, about a school that any time a class had cover, they'd just go to a computer room and there'd be somebody whose permanent position was to be in that computer room and running cover. And so that member of staff was felt way more secure in what they were doing because they knew what was going to happen. Staff yeah. would just point to a lesson on... Uh, Oak Academy or another resource and students would just get on with it and the staff member would have visibility of what's going on and behaviour dropped uh, or negative behaviour dropped with regards to cover lessons and, and that school decided that was a lot, a lot of a smoother way to go. Because um, these are the little things that we aren't told about when we, we train that we should kind of be included and I think like that's one of my things I always make sure there's one or two cover lessons in my scheme of work that are written in my scheme of work that have everything ready in the pub and I literally have to be like that lesson go and like everyone knows kind of if what they need to do granted it was a bit more difficult when I was off for a longer period of time but I didn't really have to do a huge amount because I knew that I had pre-planned that I, I was ready for that yeah, Paul's put something interesting. He said he had to do a subject <laughs> sub, uh, subject lead Ofsted interview from bed via Zoom with COVID. And it is true, we do go above that's and amazing. beyond because, I mean, that's what, what it all comes down to, isn't it? Regardless of the conversation, teachers tend to go above and beyond to try and support their students yeah. the best we can. And I think that the problem, going back to our original point today, like the recruitment and retention problem comes from teachers not feeling like they're being successful at that. And I think it's it's that like I I I broke my foot and I had a, like a week off and then got taxis into work and then got a DVT and again had a week off and then got taxis into work and then got pulmonary embolism where I finally had two weeks off work and then half term but then I came back after but in reality I was signed off for kind of six months and I should have just been off but that it was way easier to go in and be I still believe that the teachers had the students had a better opportunity me on half kind of capability 
of just kind of not being able to wander around the room. I can still teach better sat at the front than them to have had six months of cover. And like also like I, I love those students. I have kind of a responsibility. I didn't want to do that to them and their GCSEs. But I think that there is that kind of well-being side of of teaching that we don't put ourselves first and actually we do need to teach our trainees that it's okay to if you're ill you're ill but these this is how you set good cover so you're not disadvantaging the students this is how you cut the procedures that you follow and kind of and and make them aware that they can say no like if you're ill you're ill yeah I feel like as teachers we very much need to be on deathbeds before we don't go in but that's the problem is no matter how much we tell our trainees that they're never going to do it because they see. Yeah. And I, I was one of those that I saw other people pulling in ridiculous things, being ill, still being at work. I mean, and, and for my first few years, I had a, a phenomenal head of department who would literally send you home. Like she, if you turned up yeah. too ill, she would she would write your cover for you and send you home and it would be done. And that, and that would be it. And I, I was very thankful for that. I mean, like we did have to be on death's door, but, you know, we it got taken seriously and we never really had any sort of questions about if we were taking the mick but it's very hard to sit and tell a trainee what and it's easy to, to say the words but the reality is if, if if all of what they're seeing is is teachers pulling in ill and with lost voices and uh, they've got tonsillitis but they're still here and you know yeah. someone's got a chest infection but they're making it in then when they actually are ill they're, they're not going to stay at home because they, they there's the, oh, well, I'm not ill enough because so-and-so made it in without it. Yeah. I think um, I'm going to go back to one of the things Paul said earlier about making sure that students are kind of having their placements in different demographic areas and they're experiencing different schools. And and I But I do also think that the caveat in there, that has they have to be good schools. You don't want to go into... A school that just hasn't isn't prepared for you to be there with a not very good mentor that kind of doesn't really know what they're doing and trying to have just been asked but they weren't really expecting it kind of thing because I had a student um a few years ago and they came to me and they were told me that their old school had put them as outstanding and I was like watch them teach I'm like you are not outstanding and, and we kind of went through things and I'm like I ended up having to fail them on the second term and granted they came back and, and turned it around on the third term but I was like how is that first school said that you're outstanding when you're barely teaching anything and it's I think we do need to have standards in terms of teacher training but we need to be teaching them properly like she was very much like I need to I need to do this I need to what's what are you going to assess because if you assess we all are assessing everybody in the department are assessing because we can't have your kids getting a, a extra advantage over anybody else's so if you're assessing we're all assessing secondly how does it benefit the students we're not assessing for you to tick a box we're assessing because the kids need to benefit from it so how are you assessing it that is going to benefit them and third if we're all doing it and we're doing it at this point how is it going to be time effective that we're all not going to waste our time? Because you may only have the one group you're teaching, but I've got four and the other teacher's got another couple. So if we're going to, that, granted we're quicker, but, and it, and it completely changed her logic in terms of how she thought about kind of the teach training. And same as before that, she was like, oh, I like kind of telling the kids off and had, kind of scare tactics almost kind of behavior thing I was like you, you need to get to, I'm not going to pass you on behavior until you get to know those kids engage in the kids and get to know them like really 
kind of individualized them and as soon as she started doing that and really got to know them she did like a rewards game with them and they were like putty in her hands i was like you 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 need to be focusing on praising them rather than just telling them off and as soon as she did that and actually they were like kind of looking for the things that they could do right to get attention from her and get praise they were different animals and then she was able to kind of really control that class and i think I don't know whether, I mean, obviously I've done a lot of mental training, but a lot of that is stuff that I volunteered for again, because they're, they're free, but also because I just love it and I'm slightly addicted to CPD. So I've been like, yeah, I want to train and I, I want to know how to be the best mentor I can be. But there's there's got to be a lot of things, onus on the schools that we're picking the right mentors for the trainees and that they're properly equipped and also that that communication between the providers and the mentors because I feel that they're quite separate like I don't really know what they're being taught on the Friday I wait and kind of get told by my trainee um, after the fact and it's like it would be quite nice to kind of have a real like up-to-date what they're doing and kind of be able to blend that into what I'm doing to really emphasize things to make sure that the teachers um the student and the mentors and the training provider are all on the same page and um, there was probably probably a good hundred teachers there and and everybody was kind of saying the same thing bar a couple of people that had obviously got really good providers but they just said that it was it was a bit of a minefield you were getting not as good a quality trainees and that and that the information they were being provided was wasn't as as good so the training it seemed to be very much you've got to pass them regardless and I, I don't think that's the case I think we need to have a rigorous system but it needs to be a system that supports them and because we're not doing it properly we're not provide, creating trainees that are able to go on and and kind of they can be and then struggle yeah I think there's an interesting thing alongside that and, and Paul said something about here about the communication between mentor and mentee I think there's there's a lot to say about that though because I've had students who I've not been the mentor for but I've ended up doing a, a, a chunk of work with because they, they end up getting feedback mm-hmm. from so many different places that actually being able to narrow that down to what what actually do I need to improve because sometimes I think mentors might have their half an hour a week with their their person and, and they might see them teach or or and things but they're not seeing them in all these different classrooms and actually sometimes it needs a different set of eyes to sit and say look okay this is the area that you're struggling with here are some real things here's the thing that sounds silly but actually like if you do it a few times almost play a game with yourself when you're teaching it might work so for example one of my trainees was not keeping the pace with students and sort of sending them off to do things and not giving them noise reminders or anything like that and I sort I set up a tally of okay in this lesson I'll, I want to hear 30 noise reminders and it sounds like it was something that my mentor did with me when I first trained and it sounds like a silly target but actually what it teaches you to do is be really aware of the, the instructions that you're giving and be really intentional with them and actually use them properly rather than just sort of hovering and and that there's a place for pastors perch and, and seeing what people are doing and keeping on track with people's that way but actually them hearing a vocal reminder that yes you're still paying attention and they still need to be hustling with their work is is always worth it but it's, it's hard because there's there's quite a lot of people at play in any teacher training there's the the trainee there's the mentor then there's the the, the lead person within the school and then 
there's the potentially other teachers within the school that are having classes taken by that trainee. Then there's the, the teacher trainer provider. So there's a lot of different people going on for, for one person trying to, to hone a skill that they may be, that, that they have no practice with. And I think it, it's it's one of those, like um, a few weeks ago, I had Jim Knight on about his book, Instructional Coaching, and I highly recommend that one to anybody that's being a mentor and kind of getting them to analyse their lesson and explain where they think their weaknesses are and kind of getting them to, to do more of the talking, but then also then to give them different strategies, but get them to pick which strategy would work best. So they're, they're kind of making more conscious decisions about their learning and building up their toolkit as to what works for which lessons. And I think there's, there's also that idea of making them realise that um, as trainees, we need to realise that every lesson isn't going to be an outstanding lesson. Like generally, we run on kind of like 60, 70%, like on a good day. Like we're not going to be all bells, whistles, amazing lessons because we simply, like we said at the start, just don't have the time to be pulling out these awesome lessons. It's not physically possible to be doing that constantly because you just don't have the energy or the time or the capacity to do that. And, and that actually the perfect lesson doesn't exist on a daily basis. It's it's you'll have those lessons and it won't be the lessons that you expect it to be either, that you'll think, oh, this one I put loads of effort in. It's really well planned. It's going to go perfect. It's going to be great. That one will go awful. But the lesson that you don't plan as well that actually ends up being amazing, that's that's the one that you'll remember after. And I think it's it's teaching them to adapt and change and not be afraid to go kind of off piece because that's the best thing about being a teacher when a, a kid throws you a curveball and you actually like makes you rethink how you're going to teach it and and the, each time you do teach things you do develop and change like I still have lessons that I'm teaching that are 10 years old but I still change them every single time I teach it a different way and, and that's what I like about teaching that's what is so great about teaching and I think it's it's losing that perfectionism but that having that need to be able to adapt constantly is really important yeah and I, I think that all of that is really important and I, I said to trainees before it's all about raising your average lesson so it's not about how you can have one amazing lesson but you need to understand how to raise your average lesson and often like a theme for the week is better than we're going to try this thing and that thing and you should improve yeah. this that, and the other just saying okay this week we are going to focus on this one thing you're going to get really good at this one thing and then next week we'll have a different focus and and keep going like that and actually I think that takes away some of the noise that that's, that's the people can feel but also everybody needs to be told that you're going to have an awful lesson everyone has an awful lesson and it's, it happens more than once where you might have planned it and you think it's great and you've put everything in place and for whatever reason it all just goes up in the air and you 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 end up leaving the lesson half wanting to cry half sort of because you've you put all this effort in and nothing's come to fruition. And the other half, because sometimes you don't even know particularly what caused it to go so wrong, because only on reflection can you really work that out. But actually, I think sometimes saying that to, to trainee teachers and being honest with them about it is something that, that sometimes isn't done. And that, that kind of understanding that life will go on, kids will go on, and that when when we fail or if we miss day of school or if we if we like say actually no we can't do that or even leave a school sometimes you feel like you can't leave a school and it's it's like 
life goes on you're replaceable the kids are, are resilient like like i said me going off sick like in the, yes they took a bit of work to get back on target but actually they're resilient they're fine they will get on they'll be okay like it's it's you you don't need to stay up till midnight creating a resource actually what you've done beforehand is probably going to be fine and you can just adapt it in the lesson like it, they're better off having you on a good night's sleep than you having stayed up to silly o'clock trying to recall something and I think that goes for the performers as well in terms of the lesson plans and things that students need to fill in like we don't really fill in lesson plans anymore granted I've got schemes of work and it's really important that they understand how schemes of work work and how the sequencing works and how the interleaving of information works but the, the workload of having to write like a ridiculous amount of lesson plans. But then that, that might be just me because I was doing mine whilst teaching a 0.8% timetable and I wrote a lesson to plan honest, for every one of those. Um, but I so I'm like, got oh. a huge problem because we teach them how to write a lesson plan. And then but, they never use it again. But yeah, but also nobody tells them how to not write a lesson plan. Yeah. Like, we, we all, we all, let's be honest about it. We don't all sit writing a lesson plan. It's not that we don't think about our lessons. Or and, and plan them, but, but I don't know any teacher that does the, these huge long lesson plans. But we all still plan a lesson and think about things to include in a lesson. Yeah. And I think actually somebody needs to talk to these trainees about well, what what what's the bridging step between these hugely long um, lesson plans? And I mean, I know Teach Toolkit has a five minute lesson plan that's a good sort of yeah. uh, gap fill or step over. But yeah, I mean, I used to have a when I first trained to teach because science obviously you've got chemicals you've got all these different things and I remember having a really bad lesson during training and ultimately it wasn't my fault it was because there'd been a fight in the corridor 10 minutes before my lesson started and I had three of the kids who were in the fight return to my lesson halfway through my lesson so it was never going to be a solid lesson or practical but my mentor just and, and we sat down afterwards and we sort of we had a bit of a laugh about it, and I, I felt really bad that that the lesson hadn't gone to plan. And um, she said something that, that I think will, I will always stick with me, which is, "Well, doctors have this first do no harm, and actually teachers have the same first yeah. do no harm." Did your kids get from the start of the lesson to the end of the lesson safely? Right. Yes. Okay. Did they manage to learn something? It might not have been everything that you wanted them to learn, but did they get to the end of the lesson knowing something they didn't know at the start? And if the answer is yes, you've been successful. It doesn't mean that you've you've reached peak success, you've done everything you wanted to do, but actually there are lessons that are like that, that they, you get to the end of the lesson and it, it just, the lesson happened and you've got to move on from it. But I think sometimes that's not necessarily spoken about and we spend so much time talking to trainees about about how to get their teaching practice perfect, which in itself doesn't exist, that actually trying to say to students and trainee teachers, look, sometimes it just goes wrong. Like, you can set up some of these science practicals. I mean, there's a particular biology one. It just, it rarely works. And so if it works, it's a bonus. But otherwise, we can sit around watching some colour change to happen that will never happen. And that's okay. And you kind of have to just explain it and move on. 
It is, it is that whole thing of, of, I think we should teach them more about resilience and how to adapt. Like, how do you cope when you've got kids coming in middle way of the lesson or somebody disturbing your lesson? How do you cope when, for example, a, a school not far away from ours uh, got hacked and they end up, they weren't allowed to use the internet and they had to teach our books. And they like the, the older, the older teachers were fine. They were like, yep, we're okay. We know how to teach our textbooks. New teachers, no, didn't have a clue. They were like, what? So it's, it's, it's that kind of oh, resilience to be able to adapt. One of my train when I first trained to teach, one of my mentors made me do an entire teaching day with just a whiteboard pen and a pen. Yeah, I think it's, it's important that they look at different things and looks at different styles. But I think in terms of the teaching planning and the performers and stuff, I think rather than writing these lesson statements and stuff, yes, you need to know what, what, what they need to know, what their prior information is and what their key concepts are. What are they going to walk out knowing you out of your lesson? But that shouldn't be a huge, massive thing. And that, but it should be all about what your kids' learning styles are and what support and what things you need to do. And I think also that idea of how you plan when you're teaching a full timetable is really important. Like me and my friend joked that um, she she came over and asked me, she's like, the math teachers are taking the mickey out of my planner because this is how I write out what I do for the week. And she literally had a sentence on each one of what she was going to teach. And I was like, yeah, that's how I write my planner. I know. I know what that lesson is that all my schemes of work are written. I just have to write a sentence or a couple of words and I know what I'm doing with that class and, and maths, they don't, they write it all fully out, like in their planners, what they're doing for every lesson. And I think that kind of idea of, of what do you need to know? How do you, how can you prep for a week and the following week and knowing like I, I write three, four weeks in advance. And then when we have strikes and I have to shift, shuffle everything up or a GL assessment and shuffle everything. And then, uh, a course that I forgot about and I've got to shuffle everything like it I can see the impact of that and, and which lessons I then which lessons do I take out of that scheme in order to catch that lesson up the class that always has a lesson on a Monday so therefore they've missed four or five lessons because of a bank holiday versus the other groups that haven't how do I make sure that they still get the learning that the other groups get they're the things that you need to know as a teacher that you are not taught as a trainee and I think should would better adapt them to be able to cope when they come to a full timetable. I think the problem is though is the people who are leading a lot of these teacher trainings are so are, are removed from that reality because oftentimes they've become a head of department or um, an assistant principal and then gone into teacher training at a later point and they've almost forgotten the full what the full teaching load situation um and you, you almost need the 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 staff romantics i mean in in science that the in most schools the science teachers will be found in the prep room and so there's a lot of jokes and a lot of online groups about the, the science teachers prep room and and where you can go that's where you go and find information because as a trainee science teacher you need to to just sit in a prep room for days on end and just soak in from the lab techs and soak in for the information from the different teachers coming in and going out and the tips and tricks that make a difference. And in doing that, you pick up all this information that that it would be hard for a person to sit and distill to you. I think this is the thing is we almost have this fallacy of if you have, that there's two ends of a spectrum that you're either, or a binary actually, people seem to think you either can tell somebody how to do something better or they learn by experience and the thing is there is this middle ground where it's it isn't that it's them 
sort of taking in information slowly and then starting to embed it along the way that isn't it isn't experienced they don't need to do it 12 times to know how to do it they might just need to hear that nugget at the right time I, th- I think that's exactly it we need to be giving them more skills of how to cope when they get to full time because I think it's this whole kind of building it up building it up but it's actually quite a quick process being a one-year uh, induction into teaching and that actually when we get there we kind of then panic and you're on your own and you don't really know what you're doing so it's it's kind of knowing where support is and how to be supported and kind of what the best things are and also not to put the pressure on yourselves where what is a good teacher versus an excellent teacher they're the ones that can adapt and learn and know and know what to do and know how to cope and and know where 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 you cut and where you you focus and how you gain your time back because this is a profession that if you want to have longevity in you need to be able to protect yourself and protect your home life and not be kind of doing it continuously you need to be able to have that balance and that it's healthy to say no and know where your limits are because we could put every hour we possibly could into teaching and we still wouldn't be happy because we're teachers and we're, we we want to do the best and education is continually changing and um that's just what we do but it's it's kind of understanding those and, and getting for people's well-being i guess understanding that balance um but yeah i think on the note of the fact I've just seen a surfboard be carried into my lounge, uh, that is the point to end the show. Thank you so much for joining me, Lydia and Paul, and chatting away. Um, and uh, yeah, so we're going to completely reform teaching training and solve the retention process. So no problems at all. Bye. Bye. Have a lovely summer, everybody. I'll be back on your Monday night soon.